0: The following podcast contains spoilers. We strongly recommend you watch the episode of The
1: Americans We're Discussing before listening to the podcast. New episodes air Wednesdays at 10 p.m. on FX. Say if you're on a subway and they get onto the car, and just before the doors close, they jump off and get back onto the platform. Well, if any of us do that, obviously it's going to tip him off, and then they just abort their, their missions.
2: Hello, and welcome to Slate's TV Club Insider Podcast for Season 4 of The Americans, where today we'll be discussing Episode 3, Experimental Prototype City of Tomorrow. I'm June Thomas, a writer and editor at Slate, and I'm the host of this podcast, which takes you behind the scenes of the show. Today we're going to be talking with a former FBI special agent who, like Stan Beeman, worked in the counterintelligence division. And after that, the show's line producer, Mary Ray Thewlis, and Bob Lemshin. Senior Vice President Production for Fox 21 Television Studios, who will be joining us from Los Angeles. I'm in Slit's New York studio with Joe Weisberg, the creator of the show. Hi, Joe. Hi, June Thomas. <laughs> and his co-showrunner and co-executive producer, Joel Fields. Hi, Joel. Hey, June. Our real-life Stan Beeman is Richard Colmar, who was Deputy Assistant Director of the FBI Counterintelligence Division before he retired just a few weeks ago. Thanks for joining us, Rick.
1: Hey, it's great to be here. Thanks for the invite.
2: I think he's closer to Frank Gadd. I'm just going to say that. Yes, yes, absolutely. You're right. Uh, Now, we know that television can never be totally accurate. And I know sometimes FBI agents actually spend their whole days at their desks doing research. But generally speaking, uh, what are your biggest beefs, accuracy-wise, about the way the agency gets portrayed on television? Oh, my God. we have to start there? (laughs) Does that have to be the
3: the first question, June? Oh,
1: my
2: God. All right, Rick.
3: Lay in. It's all right. We can take it.
1: No, as as you as you said, obviously uh, what we do on a, a day-to-day basis, or what I have done, uh, you know, might not be the best uh, television. However, I think in general the biggest beef is that it seems to gloss over the legal process and what we have to do, agents have to do, to uh, to carry out their mission, and you know that is following the Constitution. Did you have kind of a um a different experience with the people
0: on the other side that is to say the people you are pursuing the difference between being a criminal investigator and pursuing bad guys bank robbers you know. and to murderers and whatnot mm.
1: and pursuing spies most certainly uh, and I think that's what I found to be the most interesting change and significant challenge is that uh, you know for the most part catching a bank robber is easy you know, not all, but most are not that bright. They're leaving their uh, pitcher uh, behind many times, taking bait money. And uh, however, I specialize in Russian intelligence. Uh, the Russians extremely um, competent at what they do. The intelligence officers uh, not only uh, have to have a minimum of a four-year college uh, education. Then they go to the Red Banner Institute for their spy training, which is upwards of four to five years of specialized training to be a spy. And then they take the best of the best to deploy to the Americas uh, section, which is the U.S. is part of that uh, because they know this is the most hostile, most difficult environment to work in. So that's who I am now working to counter the activities of a very sophisticated, very well-trained uh, intelligence service.
2: Hey, Rick, I'm, I'm, mm-hmm. I have a question that I, I hope is not too personal, but um, one of the the things that really strikes me is how lonely a job it is. I mean, mm-hmm. our FBI agent, Stan Beeman, is, his marriage broke up partly because he was undercover for so long, then because he's basically obsessed with work. Well, can I add one thing to yeah, that question? Please. As you answer that, sure. would you also
3: answer, like, were you guys mostly friends with each other? Did you mostly socialize with other people from counterintelligence, or did you have a lot of friends from outside of work? Like, when I worked at the CIA, it was very insular in that way. Was the FBI the same mm-hmm. way?
1: Mm-hmm. It, yes, in many regards, Um one of the things that when I did work criminal matters, I was freely able to obviously talk about those type of cases and investigations, uh, with, with family members and with others. It's kind of in the office, uh, working counterintelligence. It, you know, I worked undercover, uh, too, but there are safeguards in place to, to monitor how you're doing, uh, emotionally and, uh, you know, mentally to make sure that uh, there is that balance and, uh, that you're able to fulfill the job uh, uh, doing the undercover role and, and still keep a healthy mental balance.
2: What, what kind of safeguards are you talking about?
1: Well, see, uh, every six months when I was uh, undercover, I would have to go through a process where um, you're meeting with headquarters officials and uh, psychologists uh, who are going through a series of questions uh, and interview process, and talking with you to to kind of make sure that you're able to still distinguish between your, your role that you're playing and who you really are. And so there's a lot of care uh, to to make sure that that line doesn't get uh, blurred. And if you, all of our undercover assignments are voluntary so they cannot force you uh, the Bureau does not force any employee to go undercover mandatory and so if you're at a point where you're not capable or fit to uh, continue with the operation uh, even though you're totally fit to be an agent they may uh, you know request that you are removed from uh, from that role or you can ask at any time to be removed uh, from it so and I you know, I don't think the public really realizes that, that there is that oversight uh, and the ability to, uh, to remove yourself if, if you feel it's detrimental to your, your personal health.
0: Hey, I have, a, I have a question for you. You, you said you, were, um, you became an agent in 85. You worked yep. in Kentucky and then New York City. Did you ever have an opportunity to cross paths with or work with the male robot?
1: No, that's only at at headquarters.
0: Did
3: you meet the male robot at headquarters? Did you ever have a chance to (laughs) meet or
1: work with? You know, the funny thing is, in your show, as you probably know, uh, you're crossing uh, headquarters with our Washington field. Right, yeah, we do know know that. Uh, The robot was only at headquarters. It was not in any field division around the country. Okay, Would you please never repeat that in
0: public again? Cut that, Cut that. (laughs) The veil has dropped on the Americans. Forget the director of S-Stop.
2: One thing that I wonder about, um, we see, uh, especially this season, Stan Beeman, he often speaks back to people higher up in the chain of command Uh than him. Uh, They'll tell him to do something. He'll say, you know, I just don't think that's going to be effective and I'm not going to do that. Wouldn't that just get him sent out the door? I wonder if Rick's
1: laugh answered the question. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's, you know, that was me. That was uh, oh. I was stand back. <laughs> <laughs>
0: you were the one talking and, back uh, to and, your
1: superiors. And, <laughs> and, no, very interesting. I mean, that uh those interactions that I've seen uh, Stan have with his superiors, it does happen. And you know, we do hire individuals. The bureau hires individuals to be um not robots, but to be innovative, be thinkers, be uh, for, you know forward leaning, and come up with uh, solutions. Now there is that line too, though, so that and that will vary on the, the particular supervisor. So some supervisors, shall we say, are more open to suggestions by a field agent uh, or an undercover agent on to where the direction of the case might go. Some are not. As, as receptive. So obviously, uh, bottom line is, is we do have a chain of command. But again, a lot of times too, especially if you have field agents that have a lot of experience and can rationalize and explain the situation as why they want to do A instead of B, and if it makes sense, uh, you know, oftentimes the, uh, the supervisor will, will agree to that.
0: I was very interested to see that, before joining the FBI, you got a master's in behavioral psychology, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. I wonder how how that study impacted
1: your career and as you as you pursued these characters. Extremely useful, especially when uh, we're doing. I'm doing the undercover uh, phase of of my uh, career that I had, and I worked in about nine undercover separate undercover operations, all against the Russians. It is that ability to assess, to pick up nonverbal signals that might be being sent, because bottom line is I'm dealing with humans, and I'm human myself, but also I am trying to recruit a human. And so that extremely uh, useful uh, for my career. And in most uh, undercovers, you know, the, the uh, SVR officer never knew, uh, who I was, um, you know, that was never me that made the revolution or, or tried to do the recruitment. So I was doing spotting, assessing. I was a dangle, if you will, uh, uh, usually with a business cover, so that I would have uh, be Joe businessmen with a background that would be of interest. And uh, when we say a dangle, I uh, would be positioning myself in a way that the intelligence officer, the Russian intelligence officer would find me. And then uh, he believes he's recruiting me to work for him. And as he's working um, me, obviously I'm assessing intelligence on him and uh, his, uh, his weaknesses, if I can determine weaknesses. And then we're doing another team of a profile of a recruitment effort against this person. So I'm there to spot and assess and to evaluate and then what we're doing, he said, well, what if you never recruit the person, which sometimes obviously happens or never even tried, you know, because we determined he's not somebody that would be uh, subject to a recruitment. We are neutralizing his behaviors because every, for a typical intelligence officer in, in New York or in Washington, D.C., to meet with me as a, you know, source or an asset of his it would be an eight-hour SDR which is found a surveillance detection route for eight hours six to eight hours is the minimum so obviously that would make boring television too if (laughs) if you had if you if you had to have an eight-hour show to watch the guy but he spends that much time uh, doing uh, what they call SDR surveillance detection routes. Usually three means of transportation have to be used. so that will mean uh, that he'll uh, either start out in a car, may- maybe with his diplomatic plates on the car, he'll drive that for a period of time, then he'll put it in uh, down and uh, go into a subway and uh, then uh, leave the subway and then maybe on foot or bus or another to the final location, at all times checking for surveillance. Behind him, you know, looking for FBI surveillance because he would not want to lead the FBI to his contact because obviously then he loses a source. So, again, that's taking a lot of his time. And so, what we're doing is I'm neutralizing his ability. If he is working me as a double agent, I know he's not working somebody else that we don't know about.
2: That's interesting. Can Can I just ask you a
3: technical question? Can the FBI successfully stay? on an SVR officer doing an eight-hour SDR without him knowing?
1: No. No. Now, contrary to what might be <laughs> seen in movies, and, and that it is, uh, and they are, it, it, and it likewise, when when it's done in that matter, and it's all pre, pre-arranged, uh, the route has been approved by Moscow Center before it's even done. And many times that surveillance detection route uh wasn't even done by that officer. It was done by another officer at another time at another posting and sent that to Moscow Center to be approved, and then they put that in their vault of, okay, these this SDR is approved. Now, where sometimes we have seen, though, and I will say this, where they cut corners, and if you have an officer that decides, you know what, uh, I'm going to cut a corner and uh, not do the entire SDR, And uh, that's where you make mistakes. And then if they make a mistake, we're there to capitalize on on a mistake like that. If they begin their SDR, and a lot of times it would be in a position where, um, like say if you're on a subway and they get onto the car, and just before the doors close, they jump off the car and get back onto the platform. Well, if any of us do that, or get back onto the platform, obviously it's going to tip him off. And then they just abort their, their mission. So they do not then meet continue on with the So there's a lot of in those six hours or eight hours of surveillance work that they're doing, there's a lot of checkpoints that they'll go through To make a determination by the officer, am I under surveillance? Am I not? And if I'm, he believes he's not. He continues forward with his mission. If at any time he thinks he is, he backs off.
0: Rick, I have to say, I have to say, listening to this, I think you're going to like season four.
1: Exactly, that's exactly what I was thinking. (laughs) All
2: right. Thank you, Richard Colmar, for speaking with us today, Um, and thank you too for your service. Thanks so much, Rick.
1: Well, thank you for the invite, and it was great speaking with you all.
2: And now let's talk to Line Producer Mary Ray Thewlis and Bob Lemchen, Senior Vice President Production for Fox 21 Television Studios, who's joining us from Los Angeles. Hello, Mary Ray. Hello,
4: June. Hi, Bob. Good morning.
2: <laughs> Thank you for joining us. I think I'm not alone, even as a keen TV watcher and somebody who fancies myself knows all sorts of things about television. I don't really, really, truly understand what your job titles involve. Mary Ray, I asked Joel about your job the other day and he started to tell me, but he ran out of breath before he finished. So <laughs> I, know, I know that there's True a story. lot involved. Um, so maybe just tell me when people ask you what do you do, what do you tell them? And we'll start with Mary
5: Ray. I'm going to say the main thing I do, and I will give you more detail, <laughs> but the main thing I do is adapt to changes because as much as we plan and we think about things, Everything changes, and you have to adapt quickly. Uh, this week, just for example, we had a, the leading act, leading actor—I don't want to mention names, but leading actor for the couple of last episodes, his mother passed away. Oh. And so we had to shift the whole schedule around and make—and he was extraordinarily helpful. But we had to make all kinds of changes, all within a two-hour period— And the reason it was a two-hour period, and this just gives you a little detail, by three o'clock in the afternoon, if you change anything for the next day, if you change personnel, if you don't need your lifts, if you don't need your trucks, uh, you're stuck with them. And there are great financial implications. So it was literally, the pressure was, we have to figure out what, you know, 150 people are going to do in the next two hours and then run with and let them know. However, that, I mean, that's sort of what I consider I don't know if it's a talent or a curse, <laughs> but that's what I consider biggest, one of the biggest parts of my job. But probably technically some would tell you I'm responsible for managing the money, for um, helping with Bob and with the accounting, uh, set up a budget, uh, you know, try to keep to the budget, beat people up when they don't keep to the budget, uh, working with the assistant directors on schedule, which is my background. I'm an assistant director, so schedule is something I have a pretty good feel for. Um, and Bob, uh, tell us what you do.
4: You know, the best answer that I think I have is that I'm like a building contractor for TV shows. So I sort of sit between the architect's vision and actually what gets built.
2: Well, so we're talking, uh, this, this podcast is for episode three, and there's a wonderful scene in the park. First of all, let's listen to it. And then Mary Ray and Bob, I'd love you to tell me how you did that and what challenges you faced.
4: You're here with an access code for me. I don't want to know. It's not that. We found Gabriel on the floor of his safe house, feverish, having trouble breathing. But he was conscious?
5: He was in and out.
4: How close did you get to
2: him? We touched him. He was coughing.
4: It was blood. He must have fallen. yeah asshole you should have wrapped gabriel in plastic and burn his body
2: okay so that was awesome
5: now how did you do that um that was took quite a lot of work and we shot it if memory serves me from Dark. We we did another scene first in the park. There was a scene with uh, Young He and uh, ah. Elizabeth sitting on a park bench. Hopefully you didn't realize that it was the same park. It was a different portion, And it was day, so it looked very different than night. But it was all done by the actors. There was no stunts. I think we had a couple stunt doubles there, but our cast loves to do their own stunts. <laughs> um Yes, you can, okay. and,
0: and, and you can also, I think that's the night she, uh, she had her nap, isn't it?
5: Yes. Oh, yeah, thank you for reminding me that. I didn't know if I was allowed to say Carrie's pregnant, but um, <laughs> we knew that by that point, and of course we had a stunt double for her, and she rejected us just right out of hand. <laughs> but having said that, she wasn't very pregnant. Last Friday night- She punched the stunt double in the face. <laughs> last Friday night, oh, and now she is very pregnant. She did her own stunt in a parking lot that was quite- Challenging. In fact, wow. she told me this week. She said, "Now, and once that stunt was over, she felt the burden of the season had lifted." Aww. But which, when we, what Joel is referring to, is while we were finishing, and there was a break for her, she didn't go back to her trailer. She didn't. She just stayed there. It was a fairly warm night, and she got. She curled up on the grass and went to sleep for about an hour while we were doing something else. And the prop man came and put a coat over her. And then when it was time to get up, we just took the coat off and she jumped up and did whatever she was supposed to do. That's what this cast is like, by the way. That's amazing. So you've explained that you're outside, but like, so where is there money involved there? That was an extremely expensive night. Uh, anytime you do night exteriors, there's a lot of lighting involved. and what that means is there are lifts and cranes and sometimes cranes. and uh, huge lights much bigger than your normal lights. Just this was a big expanse of park. It looked about the equivalent, I would say, of three blocks.
4: And so for example, you might have to bring in an extra generator. Because you have a big light two blocks away that you know you need to have separate generators with a separate generator operator and truck, and you have personnel, and everything that you shoot at night is uh, more time-consuming than it is during the day. So all that is money.
2: So when you see the scripts, you know you said when you see a script and you see driving or you see EXT and all of that stuff, but would you ever say to John Joel or do you ever say to John Joel, dude, you got to? do a couple of episodes inside because we've spent up? Or, I mean, how does that... She sort of better.
4: Com-
2: <laughs> <laughs> how does that conversation come around? And, and is it as crass as how I just put it? Or how would it, how would that kind of conversation actually happen? She more starts to look sad. Oh. <laughs> yeah, <we laughs> just can't,
0: yeah, she doesn't have to say it to us. Yeah, she <laughs> just
4: mopes.
2: <laughs> I
4: think a couple of things, if I may. Number one, by having the scripts up front, you can plan it better. So, for example, one of the burdens of the show, is financial and logistical burdens, is White Plains. So,
3: That's where the Jennings live. The Jennings oh. live in White Plains. The Jennings house that we shoot in is in White Plains. New
4: ah. York. Which, for various reasons that are singular to production in New York, it's a, it's a, it's burdensome financially and logistically to shoot in, in White Plains. So, if Mary Ray has a two scripts ahead or an outline and says, oh, hey, there's, you know, you've got half a day in white planes on this script and a half a day in white planes on the next script. Why don't we combine them? And you can do a little bit of mix and match and the director from the next script can come and and split a day in white planes. And that is only possible if you have people who, you know, showrunners who deliver scripts. Mm. And does that make sense?
2: Absolutely. Yeah. One, and just, not to focus too much on all the challenges, but let's do that. Um, <laughs> in this episode, there was a scene in Russia, as there often are, but it was an interior scene. Um, I presume that's done uh, out there in Gowanus. But uh, I know, without going into too much detail, that later in the season, there are scenes, exterior scenes, in Moscow
5: so where where was Moscow
0: that'll be on next week's episode it was
5: it it was a walk and talk in a park on the Upper West Side Riverside Park and um, then we had green screen and then it was replaced with Lennon was it Pushkin Square uh,
3: Pushkin Square yeah with a famous
0: uh, with a famous statue if you know Moscow uh, theater in the background oh that Ah. was
5: it yeah Uh
0: hey everybody big spoiler get ready we're fake going to Moscow next week
2: (laughs) (laughs) the three sisters would be so happy um and Mary Ray, are those things like a car crash? Um, are they the most expensive things? Are they the things that are that give you the biggest headaches?
5: Um, well, expensive is one thing, and they often are quite expensive. Especially because if we crash a 1980 car, that's you know that then our then our inventory goes down right. to twenty. Right. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I had a wise AD tell me once that you really don't need to worry about the big stuff, the stunts, the explosions, the this and the that, because everybody is so concerned about those. Everybody is on their best mm-hmm. and their most acute behavior. They're all paying attention. What you really need to worry about is two people in a room. And in a way, it's very good advice. You know, um, not that that's money worry, but it's in terms of where something can go wrong. <laughs> so
4: Because, because uh, you know... It, it, Time is the most expensive thing. You know, time is more expensive than flipping a car. You know, you spend X amount of money, you prepare it, as as Mary Ray said, you you know, everyone's on their game, you get it done. But all of a sudden, an actor isn't getting the script or has a problem or the director or something just puts it off right on the day or it's with a guest actor that, you know, something throws you off and all of a sudden, you know, two hours of overtime are more expensive than flipping a car.
5: Mm
3: -hmm. I mean, that's really something I've learned is that, you know, dinner party scenes are really a big deal because you've got so many, if you've got eight people at a dinner party, the director has to cover all eight of those people, which takes a
0: lot of time. So that's an expensive scene.
3: Wow. You know, Next time I, I, we
0: do a dinner party, we should seat everyone like the Last Supper, well, just all on one it's side it's of the funny table. funny you say
3: that because I watch I Love Lucy with my daughter, and when they have a dinner party, Fred, Ethel, Lucy, and Ricky all sit on the same side. And I'm like,
2: oh, <laughs> now I know why they're doing that.
3: <laughs>
2: you, you guys are ruining the magic of television for me, I just want to say. Um, I was very excited because we got a glimpse of Claudia this episode, and I always cheer when I see Mar- Margot Martindale pretty much anywhere, but especially in the Americans. It's interesting to see Gabriel and Claudia together. Uh, it's like seeing an analyst being analyzed. How do you guys see their relationship? Because I don't think we've seen a handler be handled before that, right?
0: We didn't really see that as, as Gabriel being handled as much as it was coworkers talking and sharing. And it seemed like a great opportunity f- to see different sides of each of them and to see him in a place that was much more vulnerable. And, of course, there's something very interesting in that he expresses one set of things to Claudia and concerns there and then takes something different back to Philip and Elizabeth. And though clearly he cares a lot about them, he he's also capable of wearing more than one face, it seems.
3: It's a problem for every character on this right, show. Right. When do they get to open up and show something other than a, a little bit of a front? And That's right. kind of Gabriel's opportunity.
2: Right. Uh, yeah, and it's very rare no. to, for them to be able to speak honestly, it's right. easy to show something different but not to give their honest view Nina has a dream scene in this episode and she actually has kind of several this uh, this season um, and it's really striking because it's a very realistic show and it's, these dreams are almost like a fantasy element um, were you trying to introduce a fantasy element into a very realistic show? I
3: don't think so. I think that's something we have tended to avoid. We've had very right. few dreams, right. you know, and I think it's something we both sort of bridle against in general. It just seemed to fit this story. I mean, she's been in these places, very isolated, you know, prison, the the military complex, and it just it just seemed right that you would go into her dreams a little bit. So our goal was to make, make the dreams real and tr- try to think what her unconscious would be conjuring up.
5: Yeah, may I just bring up a production note in yes, this context? Please. Um, the dream sequence, uh, we didn't shoot it during the episode for one reason and another, and it kept dragging on and dragging on and hanging out there we had to get it. So we finally took, our original director was not available, we took Chris Long and we showed him where we were going to shoot it, which was in this crappy little room that is, I want to say, maybe one and a half times the size of this room we're sitting in right which now. Which is tiny. Yeah, tiny. And um Ugly. And whatever. And Chris said, you know, I wonder what it would be like if I filled it with flowers. And he came back with this completely crazy original idea, pitched it to Joe and Joel, and it ended up being fantastic. And, and, and so that was something that pr- production and and just he was so incredibly miserable about where he had <laughs> to shoot this thing really enriched it, I think. Right. And, and that location was
0: actually, was that the same storefront reused? So that was the original safe house recreated from season one.
5: Oh,
0: right. uh, Which included just a disastrous... Or sound, creaky floor. Oh my god!
5: That, and you couldn't get in and out. It was unsafe. I mean, it could have. Oh. It was like a. It was shooting in a box, and we had to take out a, an artificial wall if anyone wanted to come in the door. I mean, it was. <laughs> it was the second season. We built the safe house to sort of match that. Yeah. And Joe and Joel promised me it would never be used again, and we tore it down. <laughs> there have been a few. There have been a few of those, but not too many. But um, so we went back to the original place, but. But production kind of turned around or helped at least creatively with the wow. thing. Um, when Philip and Elizabeth go to visit
2: Pastor Tim in this episode, this is perhaps too personal a question, Joel, but I know that your father was a rabbi. Is there anything of him in this? You in know? fact,
0: between seasons, we got on the phone with some people that my dad worked with, uh, one rabbi and, uh, and one minister who he had worked closely with in the civil rights movement and talked about... What would you do in exactly this circumstance? What would you do if, at the height of the Cold War, mm. uh, a girl came to you and told you that her parents were KGB agents? And the responses were very interesting and, and informed him.
2: What did they say?
0: I think it was it was a very surprising conversation. It was very heartfelt and human, and uh, and it was a lot of that scene did grow out of that, as I recall. And he, and he talked about the the need to protect and defend the family, but also the need to protect and defend the community. Mm. And that they would have to do what was right and work together to find what was right. But there was no sense of clarity that he was going to hold this secret. Right. Uh, he was He talked about the concern about violence and that if violence was being done, either emotionally in this family or in the greater community, that was something he would feel a need to address. All pretty scary stuff for Philip and Elizabeth.
2: All right, that's it for this week. Come back next week to hear us talk about episode 404, the Chloramphenicol, when we'll be joined by Kosteronin, who you may know better as Oleg Igorovich burov Thanks again for listening. I'm June Thomas. Our producer is Henry Malofsky. This show is part of the Panoply Network.